It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at PenFed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is October the 18th in 2022, and my guest is Carolyn Cochran, the COO and co-founder of Oaklo. Oaklo is revolutionizing nuclear energy to create a clean energy future. I've been really dying to have this conversation. Nuclear energy is probably the best example of a stranded technology. It has the potential mm. to give us a low to no cost carbon economy in the future, but it is held back by political obstacles and regulatory strangulation. So in this episode, we'll learn about how could we potentially unleash a better future that's driven by nuclear power. We'll learn about Oklo and Carolyn's mission, powerhouse micro scale advanced fission power plants that are orders of magnitude safer than old nuclear power plants can disrupt the energy industry. Carolyn, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Nicholas. I'm really excited to chat about this. I'm also joined in this episode by Matt Davis, the CEO and co-founder of MiniCircle, a gene therapy platform funded by Sam Altman, prominent supporter of and investor into nuclear power. Mac also has a background in nuclear engineering, and I'm happy he joins the conversation to help me ask better questions. Mac, welcome to the show. Hey, Nicholas. It's great to be here. I really love physics and spent a lot of time on the Hyperphysics website when I was a kid, and it's amazing to be here to talk about this today. Fantastic. Carolyn, before we get to your work, what would you like listeners to know about you? How did you end up doing what you do now? I don't think I've ever been asked that before, but I think when I thought about it, I was wondering if it was me or Oklo or both, but I think for both, the first thing that popped in my mind was that we don't fit in a box. I and Oklo don't fit in a box that I think people are expecting. And I think a big part of that is like when it comes to supporters of nuclear power, they're not typically women by an outrageous, like disproportionate amount. I think men are more like 60% in favor of nuclear women are like 20% or something like that. Those numbers are probably not exactly correct, but that when you see the numbers, it's very, very disparate. And that's a very interesting characteristic. But I think what we're seeing is that is changing, but people who aren't in this space aren't aware of that. I also feel like generally speaking, when people think of nuclear, they think of something very old. I remember being in Europe and people were like, you're working on nuclear power. I feel like that's what my grandfather did. And I think that's also changing in recent years. Like people are really excited about it and see it as something new, especially these new technologies that we're working on. You can do something new that's also old. <laughs> you can be very different in terms of demographics and use that to your advantage. I think when trying to do something new, I think we're just kind of not what people expect in hopefully a good way. 
You had already touched on this old nuclear power and new nuclear power. You represent new nuclear power. How would you contrast it? We're fans of fission in all its forms. It's the lowest life cycle carbon footprint energy source out there. So it's pretty important, I think, for the future of humanity and the planet, both sides. And it's unique when something is both good for both, right? Most things, it's like we should probably use less or do less and so forth, travel less. But it's rare when it's like, hey, we can use more energy and have less impact on the planet. And that's good for us ultimately in the future as well as the planet now or soon. So fission in all its forms is great. But I think one of our key things here at Oklo is we don't believe you have to do the same thing, the things the same way as they were done 60 years ago. There's, it's funny because it's like new technology, but it's also been proven over decades. It just hasn't been commercialized yet. So it's, hey, we can use computers. <laughs> we can use modern computing. We can use all these methods and techniques developed by the software industry. We're based in Silicon Valley and taking advantage of all the kinds of coding methods and so forth to really enable very high fidelity simulations and so forth. So you can do all of those things and do things much faster much cleaner with better quality assurance than it was done in the past and be a lot safer. So I think we're really excited about that. I think the thing we're most excited about doing that hasn't really been done before is utilizing waste as our fuel source. That's not only cool in terms of people worry about waste. You could argue if they should or not because nuclear waste hasn't hurt anyone. But the key issue is people worry about it. But what we can do is we can use it and actually produce power much cheaper and more efficiently. So it requires even less mining and even less cost. So Using waste as fuel is like one of the biggest things that we've been excited about since we started the company. What makes nuclear power as a whole so interesting? What inherent features or property that make it an energy source that is better than other sources? Yeah, it's just there's so much energy in the atom. And Matt could speak to that, I'm sure. It's really incredible. And it's hard for like human minds to grasp, no matter how smart you are, right? There's no real intuitive knowledge of something a million times greater than something else. Sometimes we liken it to like the fastest human running versus like the speed of light or things like that. It's just that we don't know the speed of light, right? Intuitively. But so like when I say millions of times, it's millions of times more energy dense. And another way to put it is if you compare one fission reaction, which is when a neutron splits an atom and it releases energy, that's a fission. If you compare one fission to one chemical reaction, like uh, combusting a molecule, say carbon fuels or something like that, you produce a million times more energy out of that. So roughly speaking, you, you can get a million times more energy out of much less fuel. And that's part of why we can do things that people are like, is that possible? Which is like not refueling for 10 or 20 or more years, depending on the enrichment. You can like the entire, sorry, country's amount of nuclear energy produced over the last 60 years, the amount of like actually used fuel left from that is would fill about like the size of a super Walmart. And that's 20% of the America's energy over about 60 years, roughly speaking. I was talking about, I called it used fuel, not waste in that context, because we, there's actually like 90% of the energy left in that fuel. So we can use it in reactors like ours. So it's just, the more you dig, the more excited I think people get about fission as an energy source, because it just keeps going. And it's what excited people in the 60s, and I think you'll get into in this podcast, but wasn't fully realized, which is electricity too cheap to meter. Electricity too cheap to meter, it's interesting. So it has massive cost advantages versus other sources of technology. What are other advantages? I'm thinking, for example, land use or intermittency. What else does nuclear power have? Shouldn't we just go with more wind or more solar? Yeah, no, that's a great question and great 
layup for me. So when you have energy that is that dense, you don't need as much land to produce it by far. And there's some great, you can find some great graphics out there, but when you talk about millions of times more energy dense, there's also much, much less land use. It's even hard to calculate because you could say, well, here's how much land a nuclear power plant requires versus say as X number of solar panels to, to produce the same amount of power. And it's thousands of times different. And people could argue like solar, you could put it on rooftops, et cetera. But it's also about the life cycle. And that's why I use life cycle carbon footprint as a metric because that captures mining and waste and disposal and so forth. And then if you require so much less materials, you require less mining, you require less land in production, but also less resources in recycling or storing or disposing of waste. So it goes, it just keeps going, like kind of the benefits of that density keep going as far as the benefits. You mentioned land use. What was the other part of that question? Intermittency, right? So they're only active when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing. Exactly. And nuclear power, even conventional nuclear power plants like in the United States and around the world today, but particularly I have data on the United States, operate at 90 plus percent capacity factor. And what that means is, and they've actually gone up into the high 90s. It's just an average is probably about 95% now for the U.S. fleet. And uh, that means that if you have a megawatt installed, maybe 95% of that actually is being produced. Whereas on average for wind and solar, another inter what we could say intermittent renewables that average can really vary right if you're in a sunny area prime spots like california where we are or arizona and so forth you get higher capacity factors for solar but usually don't really exceed 30 percent for a whole variety of reasons but maybe the biggest one is because of nighttime so you can plan around that and so forth but it, it does mean that they're not producing quite the nameplate capacity for a majority of the time and that's tough. I think the crisis that happened in Texas, maybe you want to speak to that too, but a couple of years ago was brought to mind that a megawatt's not necessarily a megawatt. So in other words, you could install a megawatt of solar, but you're really not getting that full amount out reliably. And for customers and people in areas that we're often working with, that's really important to them. Like they need it all the time. We started with customers talking to people up in Alaska and solar's just not an option for them. And sometimes wind isn't either. They've had troubles with geothermal and there's all kinds of different sources, but I'm just saying this has a really important place to play as far as fission in the energy mix in order to supplement or produce power all the time. So let's talk a bit more about Oklo. Why the name Oklo? When we first started, we had a silly name. It was just like we were were turning in a proposal for something, and we're like, "What name should we give ourselves?" And it was U Power, and uh, we never really loved it. But we were planning on using Oklo for our first plant, kind of like we named our first plant now Aurora. Then we realized we liked Oklo so much, we just wanted to change the company name to it. So we did. The name Oklo comes from a region in Africa where they discovered basically nuclear waste. They discovered ancient nuclear reactors were occurring naturally underground. And it's an interesting story because they were doing mining for uranium and they're turning up fission products and it doesn't normally occur naturally. And they're like, what is going on with this product we're receiving? And they basically discovered that the geography was such that it seems billions of years ago, there was actually natural, fission was occurring naturally. And so we thought that's such a win-win for a company name because not only is it unique, but if people Google it, they will either find out about us or find out about uh, this natural phenomenon. But first of all, like radiation is natural, but even fission occurring is natural and fission products are natural. And so it's a neat thing to contemplate. Yeah, I think it's really incredible choosing this name because it once a person finds out that there is an ancient nuclear reactor that's existed for 
so much time before humans. It, I think it's really mind expanding for a person. This is an organic process. This happens in the earth. And uh, perhaps yeah. in the future, we as humans could uh, control or benefit from uh, these types of reactions. I think you put that so well. I think once people's intrigue is peaked, they start digging further and further. But it's, I think it really flips the narrative on its head of, oh, nuclear power is so contra natural or it's just what are we doing with nature kind of a thing. It's like, wait, nature was doing this before we were. But also like for humans to realize this has been going on since before we were around, but also we're maybe even evolution itself is the product of radiation, natural, obviously radiation, just hitting the earth and causing mutations and just maybe even sparking life. So it's really flips, I think, an ancient, many decades ago, environmental philosophy on its head a little bit, which is, I think, really exciting for people to learn about and, and learn more about our planet. Also sure. that the Aurora, Aurora's houses don't even look like people would imagine a nuclear power plant. Yeah. These things are all intentional, for sure, just to flip narratives on their heads a little bit. Things don't have to look like they used to look. We don't need cooling towers. When people think of nuclear plants, they think of these big hyperbolic-shaped uh, cooling towers. And we don't need that. Oh, we don't utilize that. And we don't need water for cooling, for instance, and so forth. And so, okay, let's utilize this, like, inherent sense of we don't need all these safety systems to keep our plants safe. It looks like, almost yeah. like a glamping tent, right? Or how would you describe <laughs> how, how would the powerhouses look like? Yeah, we've heard people say a little bit of everything. I think that's the first time I've heard glamping tent. I've definitely heard tent or a chalet. One person was, I think, trying to disparage us and called it an IHOP, but we've leaned into that pretty hard. I love it. I love that people look at it and see a different thing every time. And I think that's the whole point is like, hey, this looks different. The way it looks, it's basically if nuclear power plants looked like steampunk era, big machines that are dirty and squeaking, what you have is like a Tesla, right? So stunning design. Thank <laughs> and, you. Yeah, that's kind of the point. I love the way that it looks relatable. It looks friendly. And I think a huge part of people's fears about nuclear power is that it's not friendly, not relatable, not organic. It's something not natural. But the design that I've seen you put out is just gorgeous. It's like a house that somebody would want to live in. <laughs> so that kind of flips that. Yeah, I love that you said that because that's what we were going for friendly, approachable, literally a lot of renderings you might see of power plants or anything might not have things like fences and stuff around them just because it's not pretty for the rendering. Because of the inherent safety, we also have some amount of inherent security. So we don't have to have fences and walls and barriers in quite the same way as big older plants do. And we wanted to literally show that. Yeah. And another thing. There's that some science the, behind it. <laughs> another thing that the Oklo ancient reactor brings up is that reactor hasn't melted down. It's been consistently going for a very long time. Can you get into some of the safety design of the reactor? I think it's one of your most interesting, biggest selling points. Yeah. I, I found it's inherently safe for mm -hmm. a lot of reasons. Can you expand on that? The most simplest way to describe it is really that we're safe because we use metal fuel. It was demonstrated for many decades in way crazier conditions, like crazier than Fukushima or Chernobyl or whatever. So you need a certain density of atoms for the neutrons to be flying around and hit the atoms. They fission, it sends out a couple more neutrons and those try to run around and then hopefully they're making fissions 
in a chain reaction that we call going critical. <laughs> so people think going critical is it's about to blow up or something. That actually means it's stable. It just means the amount of fissions you're creating is equal from generation to generation. So it's just still reproducing power. So actually critical is a good thing. But what I'm trying to say is those have to be packed in such a certain way. And if the fuel expands, which it does when it heats up, heat causes the metal to expand. If people are into physics or kind of materials, they know that's often true of materials. And it expands just enough that it shuts down the reaction. So that's really the essence of it. There's more complex things going on too, but that's the most basic issue that's going on there. We can point to data, right, from reactors with more thermal power than ours, so bigger in terms of thermal output and heat. And they actually took this reactor and they had it at full power and locked the control rods out of the reactor so they didn't have anything kind of shutting it down, which normal reactors have to have that to shut down to stay safe. And they shut off all the cooling pumps. And they're just like, let's see what happens. They did that, and it was perfectly safe. The reactor shut itself down. And in fact, later that day, they did another really crazy test. And then that year, they actually had higher uptime as a research reactor than the nuclear fleet at the time. So the technology is just undiscovered. And it's a whole series of reasons why. But yeah, that's what we're building off of. And I'll say this, like typically nuclear power, particularly in the United States, if you want to do a new design, you need data to prove that it's safe. Right? You have to go through the regulatory system and prove that you're safe. That's a reasonable, a good thing. But in order to get data to prove that you're safe, you have to build a reactor. And you can't build that reactor without right. licensing it. And you can't license it without proving it's safe. So people get into this catch-22 of not having data. And so we were like, when we started this company, we were like, let's build on something that already has a wealth of data. And so we really wanted to focus on being small, being within the bounds of data that already exists and just building off of that and moving as fast as we possibly can because we have the proof that it's safe and so forth. This is based on previous designs that were well tested by previous entities, I don't know, the government, and mm -hmm. in that it, it's a system that can shut itself down automatically in the event of uh, yeah. a negative scenario. Exactly. Can you talk a bit more exactly. about how you discovered that technology? Yeah. So Jake, Jacob DeWitt, my co-founder and also my husband, he has had a passion for nuclear since he was like born. He knows all these technologies. He's had experience. He actually had a Q-level clearance in high school, which is maybe one of the youngest people. It's hard to even ever know. But so he knows everything nuclear and has always had a passion for it. I think he really got into these reactors, which are liquid metal fast reactors. He fell in love with those, I think, in undergrad and then in grad school. He's like, let's let's do something around this. And he got a bunch of grad students together, and I was one of them. So I can't take credit for it, but I think our earliest iterations were really around burning nuclear waste, which is hard to believe. That was more than a decade ago. So we're still working on that. There's so much we can do with these advanced technologies that haven't been done. Why hasn't it been done? And I guess the youthful enthusiasm to believe we could do something here. Yeah, that's actually a good segue into, I would like to talk a bit more about the history of nuclear power. Why can you give a brief background of the nuclear power industry? Where, how did it start? Where are we now? Yeah, gosh, to boil it down is a little tough, but you could see by the 40s, the world discovered fission, and by the 50s, commercial plants were being built in the United States. Actually, the very first commercial nuclear power plant, and most people don't know this, even nuclear engineers, was what we're calling microreactors, so a very small plant, actually here in California, and it produced power for a few years. It was built by GE. We've done some filming out there near there, but it's always been kind of a source of inspiration to us, driving through like the Golden Hills and Pleasanton and looking at that and thinking about how it could be done again. 
I think from there, things specialized kind of saw the emergence of GE and Westinghouse producing the two main types of commercial nuclear power plants. And for, I think that the science and the technology, it was always very heavily government funded and financed and overseen. And it really came out of the Navy and then the military complex. And I think because of that, it's always infiltrated the culture that it's very rigid, hierarchical, and I think for good reasons too. You can see the Navy's had an exceptional track record. But I think there's aspects about that culture that have kept it from innovating very much or being anywhere close to where the rest of the world is today. <laughs> it's hard to even describe how backwards it is. When I first started my grad school research, which just didn't emerge from either Jake's or my grad school research at MIT. It was, we both worked on totally different things. He worked basically on making big plants bigger to some degree. And I worked on a totally different advanced reactor technology type called gas reactors. But when I first started there, just for an example, for maybe some of your listeners of how backwards this was, like I was going to work on this nuclear code and trying to update it for this advanced reactor. And so I got a firsthand look at how hard it is with these literally ancient, like decades old codes, like in Silicon Valley, this is ancient. And they were like, the reason why it has this many characters limits is because of a punch card. And that was like one of the first slides. And I was like, punch cards. I didn't expect to see that at MIT, like cutting edge research. And I know that's a bit, a bit of random example. And it's just one example. Discussion about digital controls is still a heated topic. And I'm not talking about putting things on the internet, which people usually think that's what digital means. People now hardly even have a sense of what's digital versus analog. I bet the two of you understand that, but many of your listeners understand that, just that. And so I think the range of things that we've been able to do at Oakla that are new, it's hard to quantify because we started small and really simple and with an advanced technology that was just totally different than the regulator or the customers had seen before. We're able to rethink basically everything top to bottom. And I think that's essential for really doing something new in a space that really hasn't had a lot of innovation in many years. There hasn't been a reactor like turned on that's brand new in many years. So Vogel hopefully will be one of the first here, maybe later this year, early next year. So it's just, it's a lot of things needed to change is our opinion. So let's stop there. Yeah. yeah we're going to talk a bit more about development of nuclear power and DNRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission which hasn't mm, allowed, mm -hmm. as far as I know, a new nuclear power plant since 1975, the year when it was got started. Yeah, happy correct? to talk to that. Highlight. Well, let me correct it real quick. Okay. So they ha there have been new plants of all kinds of different types, but what, the, what hasn't happened is for a commercial plant that actually started under the NRC to actually get built and start operations, Vogel would be the first. So for... Since the any plants have been completed in the last roughly 50 years, started even before 50 years ago. So there have been some, there's a qualification to me, it, it matters because there have been things done, but in research reactors and stuff like that. But when it comes to like commercial power plants, yes, yeah, it, starting in the NRC ends up being a long process. Yeah. Yeah. It's a regulatory process, right? So they want to make sure that things that come on the market are safe. But exactly. things are 100% safe if nothing new comes on the market from the new thing, uh -huh. right? Yes, but, yeah. But it means you have the lack of safety from the old things, right? So you have old nuclear power reactors that are probably less safe. You have other exactly. sources of energy, fossil fuels that destroy the climate, right? So the whole process of, hey, we're tasked with saying what's safe and what's not, that's also causing a lack of safety, right? Isn't that very yes. frustrating from your point of view? Yeah, no, that's a perfect way to phrase it. And 
I feel like we've been talking about this more and more lately, just ourselves at Oakwood, but also like with other people like yourself and just thought leaders and things, because I think we're coming to reckoning of what are our regulators doing for us as a country? And I think regulators around the world, like how do we get to this plentiful world that we think could be? And it's like, that would be a safer, more prosperous world. So our regulators helping us get to a safer place, which is ostensibly their purpose. And I think there's been a few examples of that recently that aren't just nuclear related. So the whole baby formula shortage and the role of the FDA in that and babies' lives are in the balance there and families are stretched thin at a time that the, the economy is already stretched thin and they're having to pay $100 or whatever for a bottle of formula or something like that. And they're just expensive costs. And it's, is the FDA keeping babies safe or are they reducing supply enough to endanger their lives? There's other examples of that. I personally have been watching how regulation has kept, um, honestly, maybe a too personal story, but I was literally in the hospital yesterday with an aunt who's very sick and she has diabetes. And it seems very clear that they're like restricted on what they can provide for her. But meanwhile, I'm seeing all these other companies that I admire a lot. Maybe you know them, but they're doing like continuous glucose monitoring for people who are just interested in it. And there's so much like research going on that feels private individuals are so far ahead of what I'm seeing implemented in hospitals or with providers and insurance. And I'm not sure where the gaps are in all those places. But it just feels like, in the meantime, the people are suffering. And so I think there's a whole reckoning or kind of discussion that needs to be had. And then you could look at COVID too. What are the mechanisms at play there? We as a country and a globe were able to get vaccines out pretty quickly, but could we have done it more quickly? Could we save more lives? Could we push other therapeutics that actually show really great, great data, but no one picked up on them because of the way the regulator, regulated industry seems to work? Or Anyway, all these things are very interesting topics, but yeah, I think the same thing with nuclear power, and you put it really well, so I don't know if I can even really add to it. You can be so stringent, you're keeping safer plants from being built, and meanwhile, allowing 50-year-old plants to cobble along and just keep adding. One time I was visiting a major plant in Massachusetts, actually, and, and they're like, oh, don't mind this wall outside of this other wall. They said we had one wall, but we need another wall outside of the other wall. So it was like a cement wall, but they wanted a chain link wall either inside or outside of that. And I was like, it does, sometimes it doesn't even make sense. And so I think there's been too much of that. I think with more light being shown on the topic and I think people up and down the government chain, I guess you might say, so whether in Congress, or in the, inside the regulator or inside the Department of Energy, realizing the public is excited about this. They want to see these built. I think it changes their perspective. And I've seen a lot of movement in a positive direction, I guess I'd say. And the people at the regulator who work with us are generally people who are really excited, really smart. They're just constrained within a system that they have to work within. So I think the more we allow smart people to make smart decisions, <laughs> the better off the whole globe will be. And just to give it framing why this debate is so important. So I have another conversation on an episode with Jay Stores Hall, the author of the book, Where's My Flying Yeah. Car? Right. And he, his thesis was very interesting. He said that the last 50 years, we basically experienced a process of economic stagnation, right? And technological progress was halted. Right, which is a thesis called the Great Stagnation that's been echoed by like Kyla Kaun or Robert Gordon. And he really ties it back to energy usage. Right. So there's something that he called the Henry Adams curve, was there was a time in the seventies when energy usage declined. 
right? And now we're basically, we need cleaner energy, that's for sure, but that means less, right? Where nuclear could have been what gives us both more energy and cleaner and could have let us continue yeah. on that wave of technological progress in the 1970s. So it's really crucial, I think, to understand why that happened, what caused that backlash against nuclear power, right? And it doesn't happen everywhere, right? France is happily continuing nuclear power. Germany is notoriously anti-nuclear and is phasing it out. So do you have an explanation of what happened in the 70s that we decided to just basically say no to nuclear? Yeah, I think I used to answer this question with a whole bunch of complex things about Chernobyl and finance rates in the early 80s and a variety of thing, regulatory things getting ratcheted up as a result, etc. But I was able to watch finally um, uh, the Oliver Stone documentary, and I guess I'm plugging it here, and it's called Nuclear. It's not out yet, but it, I hopefully will be. I think they did a really artful job of tying together your last two questions, which is tell me about the history of nuclear and how we got here. And then like, why didn't it become the plentiful resource we all thought it could be? And like really enabling human history. And I feel like they did such a great job of like, even me being in this industry like day in, day out for quite a while now, about 15 years. It made me like re-realize, man, I can't believe we we as a world missed out on where we could be now. But they also, I think, gave a really good a answer to what happened. And I think I'm leaning more toward that answer. In addition to like global politics and financing, and financing large plants became really tough in the double digit interest rates and all of that. But I think, I do think right at the center of it was a movement by the environmental groups, which do think it's true that there's some financing by interest that didn't want nuclear to succeed. And, but I think environmental groups just quickly turned on, turn on their heads. I didn't realize this before seeing the movie, but Sierra Club used to be pro-nuclear and they'd say atoms, not dams, because their main thing was preserving nature. And so Ansel Adams, the famous photographer, was pro-nuclear. And it's interesting to look back, and there are people who are, have documented this, about how things switched and why they think that happened. But I do think like you saw these environmental groups switch, and suddenly it became like, the sexy Hollywood, like exciting thing to shut down nuclear power plants. And it coincided with the hippie movement and kind of the anti-war movement, and it all got wrapped up together. And I think you can see with all those kind of phenomena too, it kind of became generational. The plus side to all of this is I think that was very much a baby boomer movement. And I think you see like a stark differences between the generations where maybe Gen X is half and half-ish, I don't know. But basically Gen X and younger see their Vietnam War crisis as like climate change and global population growth and sustainability and human prosperity. And it's like, really seeing nuclear power as a, an imperative. So yeah, I, I know your question was like more narrow, but I think like it's interesting to think about what did happen and what got us here. And I do think it just became like a cultural movement that combined with a whole bunch of things that took us to where we are now. It really had nothing to do with the tech. It was well proven. In fact, that, that experiment I was telling you about on that reactor that was proven for decades, it operated between the 60s and the 90s at Idaho National Lab. It was yeah operated at the lab and it was shut down that the actually just weeks after they did that incredible experiment where it was able to shut itself down in the most extreme circumstances, Chernobyl happened. And just, I think just timing just was the perfectly worst timing for nuclear power to really succeed. But I think now with how things are in the world and how people are viewing what we need to do next, I think it's experiencing a much needed resurgence in support. Let's talk a bit more about the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the NRC. Mac, feel free to lead that debate because there's interesting parallels sure. in your work and Carolyn's work. 
yeah, I'm curious what your general thoughts are on the NRC. I, I actually went to the NRC website and checked out all of the public documents describing your meetings with them. And uh -huh. according to the NRC, you've had 18 official meetings with them at Oaklo. And I know from my experience in the pharmaceutical industry that it costs about $20,000 and three months of prep work just to get the first meeting, let alone keep it going or actually make an application. So how much mm -hmm. time and energy did it take for you to get those meetings and to apply for a permit? And what were yeah. you expecting to come from that? That's so interesting. Yeah, coming from someone who knows what it's like to work in a regulated industry and see you phrase it like that. Thanks for doing the homework on that. It's interesting because we've had quite a number of meetings because there's those big technical meetings. Those are the ones that go in the docket. There's a lot of management and other kind of planning meetings and drop-in meetings with everyone from like your project manager to the director of the office to the commissioners and so forth that we've had over the years. We've tallied it about 200. It's over a couple hundred meetings total but you're right like all the effort in supporting this is significant it's really significant a decent amount of that work you'd need to do anyway as time goes on i think that's less and less of the percentage of the work we're having to do with the regulator it's like early on it's okay it's not a lot of extra work for us to show you our safety analysis because we're already of course doing that and so forth so now we've done it but we're trying to show it in different ways to make sure that it's well communicated is a good exercise in a way, but it is a time consuming and expensive. I bet most people don't know is in this industry, unlike for, for instance, like the FDA and some other industries like FAA and so forth, we have to pay every 100% of every hour of agency time uh, on our application or any work. So if there's 10 people in a meeting for one hour, you're paying 10 people times one hour times whatever the annual hourly rate is that for that year, fiscal year. So right now it's, if you want to make a round number about 300, I think it's 290 something for this fiscal year and it keeps going up. So like you can see our meetings really add up just in fees, but of course, like to your point, a lot of the cost is really on our side that isn't quite as obvious. Many hours of many staff on the Oklo side preparing and both documents, reports, but also slides and actually being in the meetings and sometimes flying out to support them and so forth. I think one good thing about COVID, a silver lining to that whole awful thing, is that finally, I think the government realized that they could have virtual meetings. Previously, we flew out for every single meeting. I flew out personally for because I led a lot of our regulatory at that time years ago for every like meeting. During COVID, we had to figure out a way to do it virtually. And that was a challenge for everyone. But at the end of the day, I think it does enable more flexible meeting and resource use. So we're not literally flying a dozen people out every time. But for big meetings, we definitely do. And I think it's really important that human beings see each other face to face. But yeah, there's many different costs, I guess, how I'm trying to answer your question. That sounds incredibly distracting from the work. And I'm yeah. really sorry to hear that. It Honestly, I'm an outsider. That sounds abusive for them to expect you to pay their salaries practically for that many hours of meetings. And I haven't heard of that as being allowed in any other type of government regulation. So that sounds mm. pretty crazy to me. It is an interesting construct. Yeah, each agency is funded in a different way. I think it started in the 90s where they said, okay, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is an agency that is, is large, mostly funded by the industry fees. It's the worst of all worlds because, and even for the NRC staff themselves, they have to still go to Congress, 
get allocation for their budget, but then they have to recoup all of their budget from industry fees. So they still have to get Congress to approve their budget, but all of their budget is still paid for by industry. And it used to be 90% and 10% was paid for by the federal government. But then a few years ago, ostensibly to help the nuclear industry, it changed to 100%. Yeah, it's wild. I don't know. It might actually be oddly better because that, that, that sounds transparent. With FDA, it's hard to know where the money goes exactly that you're spending. But like, how did it feel? My understanding is your first application for a build permit was denied even after these hundreds of meetings. What, it, what did that feel like? And was that a surprise? You got to keep trying. And I think everyone was scared to even start. So Oklahoma was the only one in formal engagement with the NRC for years. Even with all these, I don't know, you might call them bigger companies or more well-funded in some in certain ways. Like, for instance, Bill Gates has a company, but they weren't formally engaged for several years. No one was other than us, but we just thought, you got to start. You got to start trying. And so we did a pilot application in 2018. We did a full application in 2020. It was accepted for review, which is a, no one thought that was possible. So that's a win. But we also built it off of a plan that was like, hey, this is really new. In our pilot, we actually had good results with the NRC staff coming out to our offices, sitting down with our engineers, doing what's called live audits. Instead of, they can send over written questions and you can send over written responses. That's really slow versus them just being in person, asking their questions. We answer them dynamically and they can be like, hey, what if you run this simulation like this? Or what if, what about this? And so we're like, let's do live. We're all in agreement to do live in-person audits. And we literally submitted our application the day that coronavirus was declared a pandemic. (laughs) So I think everyone's plans got really shifted. So I think the longer time went on, the more we realized how much everyone's plans were really difficult. And ultimately, the NRC is held to a timeline of three years, which is generally a good thing, I think, for a motivating thing for everyone to do things in a timely manner. But it's really tough when two of those years are years that, you know, in, in both D.C. and California, things are largely shut down. It's hard for staff to have meetings. It's hard for us to have meetings. It, for the first few months, I know where you live, I guess you're in Austin, but for the first year of COVID in California, like we couldn't eat in, in restaurants or yeah. if things were shut down. Like the next week after we came back from DC, having some meetings and submitting our application, like Mountain View is a ghost town. Like you couldn't even get toilet paper. So that's the world that we were in then. And I think what's really good is now we're like, I think third time's the charm and we're working on resubmitting. There's some good turnover that's happened at the NRC too, I think. And the team we're working with now is like really motivated. We're still on a faster track to submit a license application than basically anyone else. And, but now we have the benefit of a lot of years, a lot of prep. So mm-hmm. it was really tough. I'm not gonna lie. That was incredibly tough on a personal level and a company level, but like at the same time, like we learned from it and we're on a good track. There's some other reasons why that actually ends up being good that people will find out soon. But yeah, it's been tough, but it's been a good year. So many things are coming along right now. This reminds me of some of the, just the psychological experiences of being a founder and entrepreneur at a frontier industry. I think Niccolo Machiavelli has a quote, I can't say it right now, but it's something like when someone is undertaking to change the world, there's many people in the way of this and it's a struggle to create something entirely new. Can you, can you give me some clarity on this license that's applied for? Are you without the license? Are you not able to even build like a prototype or a test reactor in the middle of Wyoming or Alaska, or can you build a small prototype before getting this type of license? You can't build 
anything that produces special nuclear material without the NRC having some kind of license around it. There are different kind of license. There's a company out there that has decided, oh, well, we're going to build a research reactor first because they're not starting with something that has a lot of data. And then people are excited because they submitted a construction permit, which I think is great. But then they're still going to have to submit an operating license request. And then after that, and after building it and operating it for a few years, then they're going to have to submit for presumably a construction and then an operating license for their actual commercial facility. So it's a long path to commercialization. And I think what we focused on was like, let's just get the fastest path to an actual commercial facility. And yes, you have to have a license for that. Um, one of the furthest along companies outside of Oklahoma is this company called NewScale, and they've been working with the NRC since about 2008. For quite a while. Oh. They just got their designs certified, which is awesome. We decided not to take that path because that's just the design certified. Then they still have to apply for an oper construction and operating license. So they basically, they still haven't done that. Like they are focused on the design of the plant. They wouldn't be owning and operating it. So they have to work with the utility to file that construction operating license. And Oklo's business model is really different because we design, build, and operate. So we really think about the whole life cycle of the company when we're doing the designing. And I think that's really important to keep costs low, just for a picture of the lay of the land. But yeah, to your question, you basically have to have a license to own and operate a nuclear power plant. Got it. Just curious, given this extended timeline with NRC, would it make sense to build the first reactor outside of the U.S.? Is that a possibility? Yeah, there's some things we're really excited about working with international customers. There are different customers in several places in the world that are really excited about what this could be, what could be done here. And each part of the world has its own regulatory structure. But I think it's really interesting to see what's popping up with certain economic development zones that have their own ways of doing regulations. Starting off with Oklo, we thought, let's show that we can go through one of the most rigorous regulators in the world. And that will prove to the rest of the world um, that this is really well reviewed and ready to go. I still think that's a really important path. But I think one of the things that's really exciting is now that we've really gone through a lot of rigor here is showing that things can be done a little faster too with similar rigor. And different parts of the world may not have that structure set up, but I'm really excited about some of these areas of really thought creatively about how to do regulatory infrastructure and do it in a thoughtful way and more efficient way. Awesome. What's the ideal geography to to implant this reactor into the ground? Is this something you could put into like in a ship or an extinct volcano? What's, what, is there any optimum geology for where you want to build it? And how does the temperature affect it? Will this work in Canada or will it work in, in a hot climate? Yeah, I think one of the exciting things is like historical nuclear power plants are so large and relatively delicate with the safety systems that they had to do extensive seismic analyses. And I've heard legends of you had to have the soil just, and if it varied even a little bit, then you had to do massive, like bringing in different types of soil types and so forth. I've heard of them trying to like shake dirt off of trees to get more of the exact kind of dirt that is in an area. It's, it can be really crazy and very sensitive, but ours is built to be, I would say like a brick outhouse. So like a tiny resilient, plant that can really withstand almost anything. Our siting criteria are, are basically minimal. We don't need water. We don't have a lot of sensitivities to temperature. It's incredibly seismically stable. So like we've analyzed up to past the worst G-forces ever recorded in North America, and it's safe to bat. It, it does depend. We've analyzed basically North America, but we haven't 
analyzed everywhere in the world, but and we're designing it to be incredibly seismically stable. And the requirement not to have water is really a big one because historical nuclear power plants and even like large coal plants and certain other plants need access to a body of water and the environmental effects that has, but we don't need that. We can cool the air. So yeah, it's pretty, pretty flexible. And then the actual square footage of what you need is on the order of a large house or a large, a decent sized commercial building. So it's really like very flexible in that way. None of our components are truly massive. They're designed not to have to be. So that's maybe one of the last major things that has been difficult for nuclear power plants. They might have vessels that are only transportable by barge or something and just absolutely massive. They can even be transported by rail and that can limit locations. We really focused on think, having things that are pseudo off the shelf and transportable in order to build these modular plants. Yeah. Having it air cooled and uh, having the modules be transportable by truck, that just sounds so incredible because it means you could theoretically build a, one of these just about anywhere. It makes me wonder what the world would look like if there were small reactors that were generally around instead of this old world gigantic multi-billion dollar nuclear system that takes decades to build. It just gets your thoughts going and so that's where I love like talking to people about this because people are like oh could you couple it to desalination in like remote areas? And it's, yeah. Could you pull carbon out of the air and turn it to jet pool? Yeah. Okay. So you could have your own self-sustaining island. Could you mine cryptocurrency? Yeah. Could yeah. So you can if you have enough energy really is what it comes down to. You can have all the other resources needed for life but also beyond just sustaining life but like having a flourishing life. That's really the backbone of a great economy is having access to energy. And so that's you can do anything. You can have indoor greenhouses like bring fresh produce to Alaskans in the middle of winter, or like North, wherever. So it's really cool. You can make water and yeah, it's amazing. Love those little vignettes you just painted. I feel like people have a poverty of images in that it's hard to imagine what the world would be like if it was better and different. People feel what it's like now. There's this ambient nowness and it's, oh, okay, everything's okay. It's not changing too fast. And Maybe historically, culturally, only only times where things get really heated in society do things melt enough for people to embrace change and and allow themselves to imagine a better future. It could be a good strategy maybe to, to paint that picture of what could the world be like? Because I think people just imagine the same world just with nuclear, but it, it could be a much better world that has more value and a higher quality of life for everybody. It's so fascinating how you put that. The ambient nowness, I'll quote you. <laughs> what catalyzes people be excited, not just comfortable with, but excited about new things? And that's another thing I saw depicted in this film is they had ads of what would the future look like with nuclear power? And you know, we call it like the atomic age. We have like atomic yeah. graphics and people now have a lot of nostalgia for that. We have actually some of those old posters around our office. But it's interesting, like it was just... It was exciting. And I was like, brands wanted to associate with that. So we have an old Seagram's whiskey ad that I think about fairly often because it's a it's whiskey, but it was like deserts will bloom through the power of the atom. There was this depiction in that film is what I was going to say about, I think it was Westinghouse did like an ad of the house of the future. It was like, yes, in this time. And it was like, robots will do more and like refrigerators will be able to do all these things and all these automated things. And man, we're still not quite there, but I think, I think we're getting back to this optimism that I see. And I think only people that are looking, I think once like different generations take the home, there's like a different cultural shift there. And I think what's happening now is people are 
not just like seeing the need, like you said, melt the ice enough to think about what the world could be like, but to cause like motivation, like, oh my gosh, if we don't do something, like our world will be something we don't want to be in. And so, yeah, it's really exciting though. I like keeping it on the positive side is there's kind of two sides of that coin. It's like, we don't want the off the worst scenario, but it could be the best scenario. Like how the world can move forward. Yeah, I resonate with all of that. This is reminding me these talking about what incentivizes people at a mass scale to change the way they do things. I'm thinking of China has announced plans to build 150 new nuclear reactors by 2035. Do you think that's a credible claim? Is that actually going to happen? And if that does, would that spur the U.S. to change their tone and the NRC might be a little faster at approving some of these things? Good question. I don't know the answer to that. Sure, I yeah. know that China is currently building like something like 50 plants. So like right now. So the idea that they build another 50 by 15, 10 to 15 years from now seems possible. It seems China, for better or for worse, if they're like, we're going to do this. I've visited there quite a few, like it was around 2008, 2007. And they don't have some of the same regulations for better, for worse, that constrains development. And so I'm not saying we need, the rest of the world needs to be like that, but I think it's, I, to your first question, I think it is, I, I would believe it generally. There's some really, I, I was shocked to see they have pretty ambitious goals for reaching net zero. I can't remember the phrase thing that they use, but low carbon power footprint, especially given their current reliance on coal is pretty massive, but they've done some insane projects, right? Like the Three Gorges dam and whatnot. How much does it affect America? It should ignite a little bit of competitiveness for the United States. But at the same time, we've seen Russia, a, co a country with far less economic resources. Like, I think it's less than even just the state of California. And they've built all kinds of things, floating reactors and advanced reactors. And they've had micro reactors powering in Siberia for decades. People don't even know about that. It's not new, really. You just have to have a country that or a legal framework that says you can do this. I'm really excited. Like I mentioned, there's some economic development zones that I think can show like, hey, you can do this with the exact same regulatory structure as the United States and do it faster. So I think that's really intriguing to watch what's going on in some of those areas. Are there forward thinking regulators who, you know, would be willing to join us on that path and implement sort of simple reforms? What do you think is other hopes for that? It's like the devil's in the details. And I think maybe for me in particular, is I've delved in the details for a long time now, you see how actually the regulations as they're written are not too bad. If you wanted to read it, if anyone wanted to read it and go to sleep uh, at night, they could take up the regulations and read it not too long, right? Like the applicable regulations as they're written in the Code of Federal Regulations in the United States are not that many pages really, but it's all this guidance that's written around it and, and kind of if you want to call it like extra biblical like words around requirements to meet the regulations or basically advice to meet the regulations. Guidance is technically not required, but recommended ways to meet the regulations. And so those one thing that's nice for us and a reason why we did something new is people are like, they can't even do what's already there. How can you do something new with them? But maybe paradoxically, it's, I think in some ways, easier for us and for them to strike out on a little bit of something new because there's not this burden of precedence that they have to meet. And so you look at the people trying to do light water reactors. That's the historical, typical plant. They're great plants. But if you try to do that in the United States and often around the world, there's already a profound preponderance of precedence there. So like you have a lot that you need to meet or have a really good reason why you don't need to. When you start with something new, you can say, hey, this is new. 
and let's look at a new way. We've got new methods or technologies or computing or data or so forth that we can utilize. And if you put forward a really good reasoning, then you pick away from that. And so I think that's been exciting to see, but the frustrating part is people are like, oh, we need the NRC to make all new regulations for new reactors. And actually, no, like they've said, and we've been working on getting a reactor through existing regulations. And yes, it would require new guidance, but that can be written as they get experience. So it's almost like people are trying to help is making it more of a moving target. But in the meantime, we're just moving forward. I think people who are excited to see it are excited to see it. And so that, I think that's been good. And we've been able to be a little bit ahead of that wave and or riding that wave because people are excited to see new things happen. So I think if you ask a regulator to write a whole new regulation, they're going to put everything in the kitchen sink in there. And that's what's happened in the United States. We're not sure where some of this new regulation is going to go. But in the meantime, we're working with the existing regulations and actually seeing a lot of progress there. And a lot of people within the regulator who want to see something new built, maybe before they retire or because they're new or for whatever reasoning, there are some people that are motivated and we have to obviously do our part and work really hard and have the right data and all the supporting evidence and simulations and whatnot. I have a lot of optimism there in the United States, even as it's not easy, but it's much, in a way, much harder to be just sitting on the sidelines complaining or saying something needs to be different than actually being in the trenches. Everyone used to say you want to be first to be second and wait till someone else goes through the regulatory system. And we were like, actually, I think we want to be first to be first. We want to be first because we know we've done the due diligence on reading this, knowing our stuff, knowing the precedents, knowing how we can make certain arguments and so forth. So we like just plunge right in. And I think it takes that kind of work to get through this. And that was important to us. This is a really good discussion. Really love hearing you. What do you think the pathway would look like towards greater acceptance for nuclear power and for Oklo? greater acceptance. I think it's happening for nuclear power more broadly. And I want to see that, right? I just think we need it for the planet. But we've recognized that's not like our job at Oklo to change the whole world's opinion of nuclear power more broadly. Our job is to build plants. And I think that will change minds when people see them built and they can go look at it or see it operating or just have it in their communities and so forth. And so that's our goal is to get things built. And I think by showing that it can be done in a very different way with much safer and more advanced technologies and we can use waste as fuel and all these kinds of things, I think that sells itself. It really does. Like when People just don't know yet. And there will always be a fair amount of ignorance on any topic, right? Like you can't educate the whole world about every topic, but I guess I see a lot of optimism there, like that once people see it. And so we're just working towards getting it deployed as soon as possible. I will say I don't have numbers, but favorability of nuclear power has really changed for the positive in the United States, but it's always been decently high in the United States. But where I really see the Delta is when you talk about these advanced technologies. And I just, I travel a lot and I talk to Uber drivers or hotel people or people at conferences and outside of the nuclear sector. And I feel like it's gone from maybe five to 10 years ago, people being like, what do you do? And like, why is that safe? Oh, that's cool. Oh, I think I heard about that. Oh, that sounds like a way of the future. I don't know why we haven't done more of that. I know that's very anecdotal, but I feel like with an absence of actual polling, I think the perspectives around advanced nuclear is very different from even historical nuclear, even as that's improving. We haven't seen pushback. Like we haven't seen, we even submitted an application to the NRC, which was accepted. It has to go on the federal register notice. That's when people can file petitions to intervene. 
and often environmental groups in the past would file these things and we didn't get that there's one kind of abnormal petition wasn't a petition to intervene but a petition to i can't remember what they did but and it was filed like after the time limit but they accepted it anyway but it was unanimously thrown out so we're just not seeing that kind of pushback so i, I do feel like it's changing i feel like public acceptance and interest we're just trying to flip it from not my backyard to an opt-in model so because we sell power through ppas power purchase agreements communities can say i want this sign a power purchase agreement so we're only really going to places that already want us so it's pretty cool to see all this stuff coming together i for one cannot wait to see a world in my lifetime that is revolutionized yeah. by nuclear power. Yes. You really did your homework and you already know, I think. So you asked some yeah. really good and different questions than I usually get. Carolyn, it was so amazing to have you on the show. We learned a lot about one of the most stranded technologies in the world. I really enjoyed it. It was fun awesome. for me. It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at PenFed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. That's got great rates for everyone.